get an understanding. We will grasp the significance of our initial calling, the calling that you want to bring us into. And Father, I pray that the things in the past that have defined us in failure will be destroyed and that we will have a new freedom to serve you in a way that we never have before. I pray that as we grasp the significance of what you did for us, that we will leave this place knowing that because you are faithful, we can be faithful. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you're seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And this is a... I thought about it. I, I did a lot of teaching this morning, so this is not... Eventually, we'll get to the implications of a lot of what I'm going to say, but there's a lot that you need to understand. Frederick Buechner, in his book, The Hungering Dark, writes, Those who believe in God can never, in a way, be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. Now, what is he basically saying? He's saying simply this. If God could leave heaven and become a man, actually a baby, humbling himself to that depths, there's no degree to which God won't go in his pursuit after each one of us. It's an amazing thought. He goes on to say, if the holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicuous of all events, this birth of a peasant child, then there's no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there's no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is just where he seems most helpless that he's most strong and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. And so Buchner is reminding us that we really can't run from God and that in the places that we think we've somehow escaped him, he's going to invade that spot. And when we think that God is the least uh, able to do anything, maybe in the face of human power or injustice, we feel like God's not there. Those are the very places where God will break into that situation. And by the way, this brings great hope to us. Because, you know, there are times in our lives where we just feel despair. There's times when we feel like, what more could I do? Or what could be done in this situation? And I want to just declare to you today that in those moments, God's presence is there. And we just need to recognize that. In Hebrews chapter 2, we find God's incredible purpose for coming to this planet. I've entitled it, God's Rescue Plan. And simply put, how did God decide to do it? He decided to come himself. It's a beautiful approach. God's rescue plan for humanity is himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth, being born as a baby. The writer in chapter 1 has already pointed out that Jesus is the creator and is greater than all heavenly beings. We read that from Psalm 8, but in chapter 1, he describes those heavenly beings as angels, which just means messenger. Angels are, in reality, just created beings. Jesus is not a created being. He's an infinite person. He is the second person of the Godhood. He's never, never been not, if I can say it that way. He's always been. He's infinite. 
The significance of this teaching is that the words of Jesus are God's final words to humanity. To know a group of people, the Hebrews is actually these Jewish people who had such a high regard for God, for the law, for angels. You know, the temptation was to spurn the testimony as men of men as being less significant. So, you know, they could say, well, we got the law mediated by angels, but, you know, here are these men preaching about Jesus. Who are they? And what he's basically saying from chapter one and the first few verses of chapter two is that we must never put down, never depreciate the message of the Son, who is God himself. His words were communicated through men with signs, wonders, and miracles testifying to this truth. The basic issue was the threat of the gospel of Jesus being minimized. And by the way, this threat is as real today as it's always been. People are always, you know, adding to it, diminishing it. They're always tampering with it. But let's just leave it the way it is because it's so powerful. The good news is in reality that all of what is being said is actually a fulfillment of everything God said previously under the Old Covenant. And that's why the book of Hebrews is just laced with quotations from the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament. The reasons why people uh, were running around seeking answers, you see, and they've always done this. People, when they have problems, want answers. Isn't that true? When people are in despair, they want hope. When people are struck with addictions, they want to be set free. When people don't know where to turn, they want to find some measure of an answer to the problem that they're currently confronted with. That's human nature. That's our desire to experience something better than what we're currently experiencing. And I want to suggest to you that people are turning to all kinds of things today, and sometimes they turn away from the very source of help that would do them the most good, and that is the good news about Jesus Christ. I think we don't fully understand the power of this message and that's why we find ourselves turning to all kinds of other things. And you know what? I'm going to just tell you today, when you hear what I'm about to say, if you don't get this, you know, if you don't understand how dynamic this is, as we begin to apply this stuff, that's our biggest problem, is get, understanding the implications and the applications of this message about Jesus and then putting it into practice in our lives. This gospel is so powerful, it can literally change your life. And some of you go, yeah, I've been a Christian, but you know what? If your life isn't changing, then you're not experiencing the power of it. And that's what I want to talk about today, how to experience that power. Do you know that when, when, before we became a Christian, we were, you know, under the old system. We were allowing sin to dominate our nature, and it controlled us. And I'm convinced today that there are many people, even believers, who are still being controlled by their old nature, their old sin nature. And they're not free. And yet the scriptures say that if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a what? He's a new creation. And then it goes on to say, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so that's what I'm trying to get across today to us. That you and I no longer have to live allowing the past to define what's going on in our present. How many people here, you know, I said this one sermon, you would like to hit the reset button. 
If I could do it all over again, I'd hit the reset button. I would start over again. I would do things differently. Isn't that a great thought? But I want to just encourage you. You can hit the reset button. It's available to us. And I think today we're going to give you that opportunity to do that, to hit that reset button and to realize that when I come to Jesus Christ, when I fully get what he's done for me, then I can live as a brand new person. I can be free from the past. I can begin to uh, re-understand or re I need to, first of all, understand what it is that God expects of me and then I can begin to live in that new expectation with a new power in my life to live it out. And so that's where we want to go this morning. In chapter 2, the author gives us four reasons for God becoming a man. And I'm going to just basically call them the reasons for God's rescue plan, all right? And here we have, first of all, the first reason for God's rescue plan is to restore our human uh, destiny. You know, I don't think we realize our destiny is far greater than what most of us in this room comprehend. First of all, you need to understand at the very beginning, God created man in his image. We were made like God. You know, and so in chapter one, you know, like these, these people that were, obviously there was uh, this letter that was written, was really a sermon, was to combat the sense that, you know, the gospel didn't, you know, wasn't that important or somehow that the angels and all these other mystery religions were more important than what these people were hearing because it just seemed so ordinary and mundane, you know, this carpenter dying and all the rest of it. And yet, we need to understand who Jesus really is. In chapter 1, basically it's saying that Jesus is the creator. So he's not just another divine being. And so I talked a little bit about this a number of weeks ago, how the Greeks, because of the influence of Plato, the philosopher in the 5th century B.C., had this understanding that the material world was evil, and therefore God could not create evil. Therefore, there were intermediaries between God and man, and they were called you know, uh, divine beings or angels. But I, I tried to refute that a few weeks ago, that, listen, that the angels are actually ministering to us, not us serving them. And he brings that out at the end of chapter 1 and verse 14. But now let's take a look here. So what is it that God intended for us uh, as, a, as a human society? Well, when God made us, he gave us dominion and power and authority over everything he created. We were to be co-rulers with God. Isn't that amazing? We're to rule this planet with God. We're co-rulers. That's a high uh, value. And uh, that just tells you how highly God thinks of us. It's an amazing thought. God has a high value on humanity. I believe one of the greatest problems, and I think we've come at it backwards, but people identify it when you're a psychologist. One of the big problems is how people see themselves. And so we talk a lot about self-esteem. But we've come at it backwards. We thought that if we tell people they're okay, then they would have good self-esteem. No, people are not okay. We have a problem called sin. It entered into the world. It shattered us. It affected our self-esteem. It created a negative self-image. We've been marred by sin, folks. It's tainted us. We don't see ourselves as God sees us whatsoever. We've been affected by sin in our thinking and in our understanding of who we are. And then we pick up messages from all the people around us who look at us and they're feeding input into our lives. And so they, they either say we're smart or we're stupid or, you know, we're ugly or 
we're beautiful or, you know, all these messages are coming at us. True? That's what's happening all the time. And our problem is that we're so busy listening to what people are saying around us and we're so busy listening to what our society is saying about us that we're not hearing the voice of God, what he has to say about us. And the moment we start hearing God's voice and what he's saying about us, we can begin to have a correct understanding of our true value. Now, one of the things my dad did for me personally, I I share this in my story. My dad had some issues in his life, but he did one powerful thing in my life that I, I am forever grateful for. My father gave me unusual amounts of responsibility at a very young age, but he did something with that. He didn't just give me the responsibility, he gave me the support verbally and the affirmation. And he would say things like, I'm giving this to you because I know you can do it. I have absolute confidence in you. I trust that you can do this. I I know that you will not fail me. And, And so I would go out in that affirmation of my father to do what he was asking me to do. How many know that when you feel that the person who is entrusting something to you believes in you, you want to do what? You want to make sure that you rise up and take that responsibility and exceed at what you're doing. Isn't that true? Because you want the affirmation, and this is really amazing, we want the affirmation of the most significant authority figure in our life, which is our father. That's why fatherhood is very powerful. That's why what fathers say is very powerful in the lives of people. See? And my dad did the right thing there. And so that caused me to have an amazing self-value. I valued myself because my father spoke value into my soul. Very powerful thing to do. I want to say to you today that God says to us amazing words of value. And many of you in this room, you don't have that sense of value in your soul at all. You've been listening to such negative junk about yourself that you have lived in a state of self-depreciation all of your life. And therefore, it's really hard to rise up and do things. But let's find out what God did for us. You know, if, if, if sin has a way of keeping us from realizing our human destiny as, as a humanity, it also affects us on an individual level. It keeps us from really rising up and living out the purpose that God created for you and I in this life. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. That's an interesting expression. What, you, what is he talking about here? Not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, he says. What's the world to come? Well, here we have an explanation of how our world is to function. There's a world to come. Now, we're, we're actually experiencing some of the world to come, but we're going to experience ultimately what's going to happen. And my Greek professor says the word world used here speaks of, of the word economy or how the world works. You know, if you were to study they would talk about economies. You know, we talk about financial economies, or you could talk about historical economies. There's all kinds of economies. It's how things work and how the world works. It can be translated household. It's speaking of a system. The world to come is what we are being saved to. And God is not subjecting the world to come to angels, but to us, his children. Now, you may not realize this. Some of you in this room are probably pretty impressed with angels. I mean, they're divine beings, right? They're messengers from God. And everybody says, hey, if I saw an angel, that'd be a big thing, right? I mean, we'd be probably a little rattled. I mean, I've read the Bible, and these guys, angels show up. People get a little bit taken aback, because that's kind of otherworldly. 
How many say that would be a little interesting? You know, an angel shows up, it would be a little otherworldly. We get a little enamored by that. But I want to tell you right now that what God is saying to us, especially when we become his children, listen to me now, you and I are going to live forever. You guys realize this. You know, we're, we're continuing on. Even though we may pass, our, our physical, earthly body may pass away, we're never going to die. We have eternal life. And we are going to actually, we are going to, the world is going to be subjected to us. We're going to actually co-rule with God. And we're going to actually judge angels. How many think that's pretty impressive? We're going to actually judge divine beings. It says so in the scripture. Very powerful. That's, a, that's an amazing thought. See, most of us, we don't see ourselves like that. How many see yourself as a co-ruler with God helping to judge angels? How many really you see yourself like that? No, not too many of you have raised your hands. You just don't pitch yourself like that. But I, I'm trying to elevate you because I think the problem is most of us don't see ourselves the way God sees us. And because of that, we kind of live below what I call what God has intended for us. We don't see ourselves in that role. Now, listen to this. He goes on to say, to make this argument, he begins to quote the Old Testament. Verse 6, he says, But there is a place where someone has testified. We read the place, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I love that. What are, you know, why is it that you pay attention to us, God? Psalm 8 is not about Jesus. Now, the Hebrew writer is going to make it about Jesus eventually here. But he's actually speaking to humanity as a whole. And he says, why is it that God's paying attention to us? But I love the word mindful is another word when God remembers us. Now, I can think immediately of a scripture found in Exodus. Remember when the Israelites, God's people, were in captivity and they were crying out to God. And then the Bible says, and God remembered his people. And the moment you read that, that term, and God remembered, it means that God is about to do something. It's a beautiful thought. And so here we're going to read, what is God about to do? He says that you are mindful of him, son of man, that you care for him. To be, uh, and then he goes on, you've made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, we were not created as divine beings. We were created like God, but we're not created gods. We're not a divine being, but we are a spiritual being. But sin has destroyed that. But he says, you've put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So here the author is quoting from Psalm 8. And Donald Guthrie, because he, he's, he's trying to describe God's purposes for humanity, and he, he's, Donald Guthrie says this, the use of Psalm 8 is interesting, for this passage was never considered to be messianic, in other words, about Jesus. The original context is man, yet not in his ordinary state, but in his ideal state. Now what does he mean by that? Well, the psalmist is marveling at the care of God, the goodness of God for humanity. And I like what Raymond Brown points out regarding God's purposes for us as human beings. And this is beautiful. He says, first, he, speaking of humanity, speaking of us as human beings, God intended, well, he was intended to be a creature of supreme favor. Do you know that we're above all the animals? We're a, we're a, we're a creation of supreme favor before God. And then it goes on, he was intended to be a creature of special privilege, only for a little while lower than the angels. Only for a little while will we be lower than the angels, guys. Think about that. We're going to actually be above them. Are you guys impressed with this? Yeah, I'm getting impressed. This is pretty neat, isn't it? 
You know, here we are on planet Earth. You know, we think, oh, those guys are in heaven. They've never had it like we have had it. That's true. They've never suffered like we've suffered. But guess what? We're going to spend all eternity ruling over them. So we need to get that in our heads. So we're, we're in a position of supreme and special privilege. And then he goes on, moreover, he was meant to be a creature of unique dignity, the treasured aspect of God's creation, crowned with glory and honor. Hey, this is awesome. We're, we're unique in all of God's creation. We're the only creation that is like God. That's amazing. So, you know, when we walk around and act like we're nobodies, you know, we're really kind of playing into what Satan says about human beings, that we're just junk. And I think part of the problem is when we see what sin does to human beings, then we have a low value of humanity. Isn't that true? When we see how people can be so degraded by sin, we begin to have a low value of humanity. One of the great temptations, and I see it very deeply in our culture, is we've elevated things above people. We've elevated animals above people. How many are noticing that? We're doing that all the time. That's a great danger. Listen, people are the most important element in this whole planet. Other people are extremely important. You need to begin to see people as having unique and an amazing dignity. They're made in the image of God. We need to look at every human being as extremely important. We should never look down on another person because that person is now made in the image of God. They have dignity. They have value. That's a powerful thing. And just look at the way we treat each other. Are we really reflecting God's viewpoint of us? Usually not. We become quite abusive and we become, you know, all, all kinds of elements in our, our behavior toward each other, which are really unhealthy. Then it goes on, he was furthermore marked out initially as a creature of unrivaled dominion. Isn't that true? God says, I'm going to put you over everything. I'm going to put you over everything I created. You're going to co-rule with me, God said. Read Genesis 1 carefully. It brings this out. With all the created order under his control, everything subject under his feet. Wow. It is a direct echo of Genesis 1.26, but this is not the way we see humanity, is it? From our observation, we see him despising God's favor, abusing his privileges. Isn't that what we do? We abuse the privileges we have. Ignoring his dignity and through sin, limited in his dominion. That's how we see humanity. Man is certainly not as he should be. So something happened. And what happened was man fell. Man was tempted. Man, you know, disobeyed God. We allowed sin into our lives. We allowed sin to rule over us and therefore destroy this beautiful picture of what God intended for our lives as humanity. So why does the author uh, use Psalm 8 to show us that this ideal can only be realized in the ideal man, the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Jesus came to show us that true hum what true humanity should look like. Do you know, when you look at Jesus, you see what a human being should look like, free from sin. Isn't that a beautiful picture? How many have read the Gospels, and you look, you're watching, and you're reading about Jesus, and I want to just say to you, that's what we should look like. We should look like Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture? Full of compassion, know one to stand up for the truth, know what to say, have that kind of wisdom, care for people, all of that dimension that's happening. That's the way you and I need to be functioning. The Hebrew writer is arguing that under the old covenant, the administration of this world was under law. But now, in this age, this administration, this, this subjection has been entrusted to Jesus Christ. And though we may not see it, 
This is part of the tension of the age. Remember I said last week, this is the age of the Spirit. And we're living in a, what they call a yet and not yet. In other words, God has brought his kingdom into being. And yet, we don't see it in its totality. We only see it darkly. We don't see the fullness of it. You know, often as Christians, when we, when we become very materialistic and we don't see the kingdom of God at all, we tend to have a lower view of God's rule on earth. But then we can become triumphalist. And what I mean by that is we have this view that we should already be attaining everything and that, you know, we're denying that there's any problems. We're living in a state of denial. And God wants us to walk with attention that, you know what, yes, God's kingdom has come. The king is here. Jesus is here. His kingdom has come. He has come to set people free. But we're not experiencing it in its totality yet. But we shall one day. And that is the hope in which we are living for. Now, another important concept is that we need to understand is that Jesus, even in his humanity, was greater than the angels. It says, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. It is through Christ's suffering and death that he is crowned. So the second reason for God's rescue plan is so that, you know, God himself, in the person of Christ, could identify with us in our weakness. You know, most of the gods of the pagans, they had no identity with humanity. They were very fickle. You know, people didn't know how to placate them or, you know, somehow please them. But God, the true and the living God, is not like that. He wants us to know that he understands us in our pain and sorrow. So he becomes like us. He's made in our image, you know. So he doesn't come to us in an earthquake or a violent wind or fire. He comes to us as a baby. And you say, well, why did he do that? That's because he wanted to identify with us in our struggle and in our suffering. I love this about God. This is why I really connect with God, because he can identify with me where I'm at. He can identify with me in my present struggle. He went so far as to experience our greatest fear and ultimately our greatest weakness, which is death. How many realize that we rarely identify with people in their strengths? You know what, you know what I learned when I was a young pastor? People were intimidated by me. I couldn't figure this out. You know, I'm not that big, you know. I go, what's the deal? And I, what I learned was when I appeared strong to people, they just didn't, people do not connect with us in our strengths. Did you kind of understand that? But how many notice that when, when people know that you're just like them, that you share it with some vulnerability, that you begin to open up and say, you know, I've gone through this struggle, and people go, really, you went through that? And all of a sudden, everyone goes, I can relate to that person. Because they know what it's like now to struggle. And the moment we share our struggles with people, all of a sudden other people can identify with us as saying, well, you know what, I always thought that, how many have ever had that? I always thought you were like this. But when I heard what you went through, I realized, I like you. I can relate to you. You know, you're, you're real. And I think what people are looking for today is real people. We're looking for authenticity, aren't we? We're looking for people that are not playing some sort of a game and going, I've got it all together. That's not the game that God wants us to play at all because in this room, nobody has it all together. We're all fellow strugglers. And Jesus came down to show us that he understands about struggle. As a matter of fact, look in verse nine here. It says, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then in verse 10 it says this, in bringing many sons to glory, and that you could say daughters, it's a generic concept here, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, 
that's a major verse, and I want to unpack some words. Because there's a lot of words here. When we read it, we don't get what's being said. I just think there's a lot of information being communicated here. Let me just begin to unpack this idea. The idea that it was fitting simply means this was God's way of doing it. Do you know what God did? He took our, our sin, which caused suffering and sorrow, and he used that as a tool as the way to restore us. He took our very mess, used it to turn us around. He took the thing that, you know, that was terrible, the tragedy, the death, the sin, the sorrow. He used those things, and he himself now experiences suffering and sorrow and death to bring us back to the Father. That's an amazing thing. God, I love it when he says, it was fitting simply means God decided to do it this way. I like that. To taste death uh, is simply, how many know that there's five senses? And I don't know if you guys realize it, but the, the taste is the most intimate of senses. And here's the deal. When you taste something, you experience it. So when Jesus died, it says he tasted death. You know, I've, I've read people that said Jesus didn't really die. <laughs> I go, excuse me? You don't understand what the Bible's teaching. Jesus really did die. He experienced death. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? And then it goes on to say he experienced death he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, I've already talked about that word author. It could be translated pioneer or leader. And here's what you need to understand. This is the idea of the Greek colonies. Remember, they were colonizers because their land couldn't support them. So every once in a while, they were overpopulated, they were starving, and they would send a group out to start a new colony somewhere else. This is the story of the early Greeks. So they're colonizing all over the Mediterranean. And that leader, you know, they would choose a leader. And every colony story had the same thing. The leader would go out with a group of people, and they would suffer terribly. And the leader generally, in every story, died. And they usually had a statue in that new city for him because he paid the price for them to establish the new colony. And that's the picture that's being portrayed here, that Jesus literally suffered and died for us in order to make the way for us into heaven. It's an awesome picture. I love this picture. And then it says, um, then it says here, so that should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. How many know Jesus is already perfect? So what is he talking about here? Well, in our minds, when we think of the word perfect, what do we think? Without, prop, without blemish, you know, excellent, right? Without fault. That's not what the word means. What the word literally means, it speaks of the destination or the end of something. It means to fulfill a purpose. So, in other words, God used the suffering and sorrow to fulfill his purpose to bring us back to God. And so Jesus became a part of the purpose. You're following what's going on? And he brought us about to the right end. Now, so as we look at verse 10 again, it says, how can Jesus be made perfect, I write? Well, the way to perfection or completion, the God's means was suffering. The way to fulfill God's purposes or to bring about our salvation came through Jesus' sufferings. Verse 8, it says in chapter 5, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience for, from what he suffered. 
F.F. Bruce says it is in the passion or suffering of our Lord that we see the very heart of, of God laid bare. Nowhere is God more fully or more worthily revealed as God than when we see him in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Because the Bible says that God was in the world reconciling or bringing the world back to himself. When was God in the world? In the person of Christ. That's why Jesus said, if you see me, if you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God was in the world, in the person of Christ. This great salvation was proclaimed not only through what the Lord himself said. Jesus was here. God was speaking to us in the person of Christ. But it was the gospel or this great salvation was secured through what Jesus did for us. He is the Savior who blazes the trail of salvation along which alone many sons and daughters can be brought to glory. Man, created by God for his glory, was prevented by sin from attaining that glory until the Son of Man came and opened up by his death a new way in which man might reach the goal for which he was made. See, here's the goal. God wants you to co-reign with him forever. But we lost it. No problem. We got it back. When did we get it back? When Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. So what's our position right now as Christians? We're reigning with Christ. How many here you say, I'm reigning with Christ? Very few understand that. See, we don't get that. We don't understand what our purpose is. See, we think it's about living our life, doing our thing. Can I just tell you something? That's not what it's about at all. That's why many of us don't experience what God really intends for us. I want to challenge you today. Think about it this way. If God designed you and created you uniquely you, which he really did, why don't you ever ask God, what is it you really want me to do? And why don't we just do it? It's just a very sobering thought. And here's another thought. Why don't we just surrender our agendas to God? You know, and why don't we just say, God, I just give up. I surrender. Whatever you want to do with me is fine. And if we start living this way, it doesn't mean that necessarily we're going to be running all over the world, you know, emptying hospital rooms, you know. You know, we get this funny idea about what Christians should be doing. What I think what happens is we walk with a new dignity and purpose. We walk like Jesus does. We come into situations. We have a, an authority in our lives. We have wisdom in our lives. We're walking a certain pathway, and we're ministering because we now know that this isn't just privilege, but it's also responsibility. It's very powerful. So what are some of these... Uh, I just said he was made perfect in the sense that he completed the pathway or created the access for others to follow into the very presence of God. He made a way for us. How many know Jesus is the way? So what are the implications of these wonderful truths? Number one, Jesus suffered for us. Isn't that powerful? But how often do we minimize what Jesus did for us? We minimize his suffering. And how do we do that? Anytime we have a problem and we try to go somewhere other than Jesus, we're really saying he's not enough. And yet, wasn't it funny today we sang the song, He's Enough? And yet, often in our lives, we live as if he's not. Am I saying the truth? It is. We look for other answers other than Christ. Listen, I love that great hymn of the church because of the truth it teaches, Rock of Ages. Listen to what it says. Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in you, or thee. Let the water and the blood which the wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure saved from wrath and made me pure. In other words, what he's saying is it's Christ's death that brings me to purity with God. Then he says this, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? What is he saying? He said no matter how much I cried about my sins, no matter how much I do to please God, 
These for sin could not atone. That's not what's going to get you in a right relationship with God, to get at one with God. Thou must save and thou alone. Who's supposed to be saving? The Savior. God is the Savior. You don't save yourself. God saves you. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Folks, what am I telling us today? We need to learn how to trust God. We need to learn how to trust God in our marriages. We need to learn how to trust God with our health issues. We need to learn how to trust God with our emotional problems. We need to learn how to trust God with our children. We need to learn how to trust God with our future. We need to learn to trust God with the person we're supposed to marry. We need to learn how to trust God who to date, who not to date. We need to learn to trust God with our finances. Are we getting a picture? What am I telling you? We need to learn to trust God in every avenue and every place in our life. We need to trust God with our future, our pensions, our, our God can take care of me when I'm young, when I'm old. Listen, God can take care of you. I'm telling you. You just need to trust God. That's what I'm trying to communicate to you. Here's another implication. Jesus is the pioneer and has shown us the way to God. It is a way of obedience, but we must anticipate some suffering on the journey to glory. Remember the picture? We're, we're in with the leader in the boat heading to the new colony. And how many know, I already told you, it wasn't an easy journey. And so I want to just make two declarations today to really help you out. Number one, life is difficult. True? See, the older you get, the more you learn this. Life is hard. And you know, we're walking, we've lived in such easy times. We haven't had any depressions or wars or famines in North America. We've only had prosperity. And everything we've wanted, we've basically gotten. And so anything that bumps up against us that's a little tough, we just come unglued. We have no sense of resiliency as a culture because we've never suffered a lot of hardship in our life, for the most part. That's the truth. And we act as if, you know, life should be easy. Get that out of your head. Life is difficult. Number two, being a Christian is difficult. Yes, it is. Okay? Through much hardship and tr trial, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a battle. We have an adversary, we have headwaters, there's a current flowing, it's a stream against the things of God, and you and I have to come against that. There's an opposition to where we're going, and we need to understand that. And why am I saying all of this? Why do we get so upset with God when life doesn't work the way we want it to? All these angry people at God, we're blaming God for everything. I'm all upset, you know, God let me down. I'm going, no. You didn't get what you thought was what God, you know, it, you didn't get your way. We have a lot of immature, selfish people who are walking around moaning and complaining about, I didn't get my way. You know what? You weren't made to get your way. God created you for his purpose and for his glory. It's not about you. Never has been about you. See, you've got to reorient your thinking. See, when we have the wrong thinking, it's messing with our lives, once you, once you surrender and understand who you really are, it's very liberating, folks. And so I go, hey, if Jesus suffered, I know I'm going to be prepared to suffer. It says, arm my mind with this attitude. Why should I think it's going to be smooth sailing all the time? Now, has God blessed our lives? Absolutely. Has God forgiven our sins? Absolutely. Has God, you know, many times done exceedingly above all that I could ask or think? Absolutely. Has God given me the desires of my heart? Absolutely. So God has done more than I could ever ask. So every once in a while there's a bump in the road. So what? God's good. This is going to work for good. I was just reading that in my devotional time. I was writing in my devotion, my uh, journal. I was going... See how this is working for good. This negative thing worked for good. 
Jesus came, um, oh, these are scriptures. Yeah, I'm not going to go through them all, but it just says, here's a trustworthy saying, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure or suffer, another translation, suffer, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Jesus came to encourage us by accepting us into his family. Listen to verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, a couple of things here. He's quoting Psalm 22, by the way. But he's not quoting the beginning of the psalm. He's quoting the end of the psalm. He's quoting the part of victory. You know, isn't it interesting... When Jesus was praying on the cross, what was one of the words he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anybody, you know, you read this, right? It's there. Trust me, it's there. But you know what? At the end of the psalm, it's, it comes down to the psalmist comes to the place where he says, but I'm going to trust God. And folks, the victory in our life comes Though we may feel God's abandoned us, though we may feel God's forgotten us, though we may feel we have been forsaken, the victory comes in our soul when we say, God, I trust you. See, Jesus is wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he say? Is there any other way to accomplish your purposes, Father, except through the cross? What's the answer? No, there's no other way. This is fitting. This is God's means. They had already decided this. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had already decided this was the way they were going to do it. They were going to take man's sin and its sorrow and its death and turn it around and bring life out of it. That's what they had decided. And that's what we need to understand. And so God does the same thing in our lives. We have to trust. God's going to use this thing. Then it says here, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. When I say the word holy, what do you guys think of immediately? Sinless. Wrong thinking. No one in this room is sinless. So then we can't be holy? No, it's a wrong understanding of holiness. Here's what we need to understand. Holy means to be set aside or belong to someone. When you and I come to Jesus Christ, at that moment you become holy. What it means is you now belong to God. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It means you belong to God. You're his. Isn't that beautiful? That's why Paul could write to the church at Corinth, which was a very quote-unquote sinful church, but he could say, you are saints or holy ones. Isn't that interesting? Because what he's saying is, you belong to God. That's what we need to understand. Let me move on. The, th the third reason why God came with his rescue plan was to release us from our bondage. Do we have any bondages in our life? Do you know what transpires before death through sin is equally as damaging, and that's bondage. What is bondage? Well, we all struggle with it. Sin brings us into bondage. In other words, we're not free to be the people God designed us to be. That's bondage. Most fear death. That's normal. That's the human condition. Now, I want to point something out to us. These people were afraid to die. That's a normal fear, isn't it? But remember what the condition was in this, this group that he was writing to. They were about to suffer persecution. What it meant was, could you imagine this week? I want you to just shift your minds for a minute. Take away your problems. Here's your new problem. You're living in this time. You're going to go home today. And you don't know if they're going to confiscate your home, put you in jail, falsely accuse you, sentence you, and execute you. That's what you're now living under. How many go, that's a little more pressure, Pastor, than I'm, I'm used to handling. Okay. 
How many say that's a little bit more intense than what I'm handling right now? Does anybody think that's a little more intense than what you're handling right now? If you went home, you go, I don't know if I'll have my house. I don't know if I'm going to be arrested. I don't know if they're going to take me. And I know they're not sympathetic to my cause. I, if I say that I believe in Jesus, I will be sentenced and executed. How many think that might be a little pressure this week to live under? This is the pressure these guys were living under. Okay? So you have to understand where they're coming from. And this is what he says. He says, um, you know, persecution uh, was imminent. And understandably, one might have been a little afraid of the actual experience of dying, especially as it might well involve intense physical suffering. Such believers stood in need of a reminder that death has no fear for the Christian. In other words, don't be afraid to die. Physically, yeah, you may die physically, but you're going to continue on. Then he goes, but if Christians might occasionally be afraid when they contemplate death, unbelievers in the first century were terror-stricken when they considered its shattering effects or prospect. The pagan had no hope for the future, could only live for the present. I want to say something very profound, I believe, so that you'll understand something. You and I have been affected by Christianity far more than we realize, even if we've never known Christ. We're growing up in a culture that's been affected by Christianity. How many know that's true? How many non-believers do you know that this is kind of how they think? You know, after I die, some will say, I'm just going to be dead and I'll go six feet under. But but most non-believers don't think of death that way. You know what they think? I'll go to heaven. Haven't you noticed that? There's kind of a hope that there's an afterlife. How many have kind of picked that up? There's kind of a hope that there's an afterlife. How many how many know what I'm talking about? There is a hope. That hope did not exist in the first century. That hope only came into being because Christianity grew and became a dominant worldview in our culture today. Could you imagine growing up in the first century and all you had was this life? That's the way they thought. Could you imagine how terrifying that was? Could you imagine the fear they had about dying? And most people did not live as long as they live today. Most people were dead in their 30s and 40s. That's right. That's how long they lived. So it wasn't just the fear of death that we needed to be liberated from, but also the enemy of our soul. Let me just finish with these few thoughts here. I know I'm running out of time, but I want to finish. This is very powerful. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 14. Verse 15, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angel he helps, but Abraham's descendants. So what has Jesus done? He's overcome the power of the devil in three ways. Number one, by taking on the same nature as us, Jesus experienced the full force and relentless power of temptation, but he never surrendered to sin. So he understands the pressure of temptation. Number two, Jesus experienced the power of death in order to destroy its power. Number three, Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross as he became the sin offering to God. Now, this is how the devil was rendered impotent or without power, which is the true meaning of the word destroyed. The devil no longer has authority. That's what you need to understand. But what happens so often in our life, I say he has limited power. He was defeated at Calvary, but he still comes with a lot of noise. He's an intimidator, okay, roaring lion. His ability to terrorize us is based on our lack of understanding and number two, our surrender to temptation. We self-defeat. He doesn't defeat us. We defeat ourselves. Temptation is presented. We succumb to it. We defeat ourselves. Does that 
That's what's happening. That's what we need to understand. Now, I say all of that to get to my, my the, really the point that I really want to make to, today. And that was that he becomes then an effective high priest. We have someone now who can effectively minister to our needs. The reason God's rescue plan came, he didn't just die for us. He is our faithful and merciful high priest, it says. He's a person of compassion. Someone we can come to with our deepest fears, our greatest struggles, our worst failures, and rather than receiving what we deserve, we get grace and mercy. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came in order to become a sympathetic high priest. And this is what it says here in um, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace to find mercy and, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is able to come to us to our aid when we are tempted because he suffered when he was tempted. Now, I want to just say this. I love this. Let us approach the throne of gr grace with confidence. That word with confidence means that we have the right to be heard. And I want you to think about it this way. When a person of royalty comes, you don't have the, you don't have the right to be heard. A number of years ago, the Queen of England actually came to Red Deer. She dedicated the pediatrics wing. Some of the people in our church actually saw her. One person actually got to speak to the queen. Now, you don't just speak to the queen. When, you, when you're close where the queen's going to walk, people come up and say, don't talk to her unless she talks to you. That's the right protocol to royalty. You have no right to be heard. Isn't that amazing? Now, what happens is if the queen speaks to you, you now have the right to be heard. Now just think about how this, this fits in so beautifully with chapter one. Jesus is the final word. God has spoken to us now through his son. Because God speaks to us, we have the right to be heard. Isn't that beautiful? We can now speak to him. And he says now we can speak to him, but we have this confidence that when we speak to him, he knows what it's like to be tempted because he suffered temptation. So he is very sympathetic to us in our weakness. How many go, I want to go to him? See, you know, it's so bizarre. We sin and then we run from God. Isn't that, isn't that the, the normal, natural response to life? You sin and you run away from God. Hey, listen, when we sin, we can run to God. When we fail, we can run to God. Why? He's sympathetic. He has suffered temptation, even though he didn't sin. What we tend to do, we're unlike Christ so many times in our lives. When people fail, what do we tend to do? We tend to look down on them, right? That's why we're afraid. Many times why people don't want to come back to church is because they're afraid what people will say. Because they're afraid that we're going to be unlike Christ. You know what Christ is like? He's forgiving. He's forgiving. He's not judgmental. He's not condemning. He's not like that. As a matter of fact, he runs to us. He's so happy to see us. It's an amazing, he braces us. He loves us. We should be running to him. Anytime we feel, we should be running to him. Because he wants to show mercy and grace in our time of need. That's his heart. We need to understand that. So, we're going to stand this morning. As we close the service. You say, what difference does this all make to us, Pastor? 
What difference? Here's the difference. I am so convinced that for most Christians, we're living as if Christ's death and resurrection has not affected our lives whatsoever. We live as if our past is who we are. That's how we live. We've allowed all of those messages from our past, we've allowed the failures in our life to define who we are. And our sense of value is not what God has said about us whatsoever. God says, I made you in my image. I made you to co-reign with me. I have a destiny and a purpose in your life. You're going to live forever. You're going to even rule over angels. You need to begin to value yourself the way God values you, number one. And here's what I want to say to you. When we come to Christ, the old life is no longer who we are. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. But what I think is happening is we're allowing the past to shape our present. And because of that, we're in a vicious circle. Because then we just keep doing the same things over and over again. How many people you could say to yourself, you know, I live with so much shame and so much failure, and I keep repeating this vicious cycle. I live in bondage. I live in fear. On and on it goes. I thought the gospel has power to it. It does have power. We just have to apply it. We just have to apply this gospel into our hearts and lives. We need to believe the message. We need to receive what Christ has done for us. I need to say to myself, listen, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now have, I live by the faith of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not the person I was. I can tell you right now, you've never met me. You did not meet the person that I used to be. I'm not that person today. Hallelujah. I am not that person today. I'm a brand new creation. And I've been building on this new creation a whole different value system. I don't even think like I used to think. I don't even live like I used to live. Awesome. Isn't that awesome? Sure. You say, well, don't you ever have struggles, Pastor? Absolutely. But you know what? I know what the secrets are. Here's the secret. Surrender my will to his. Not my will, but yours be done. See, I know what he's like. I know that what God has is the best. I'm convinced. I think God's smarter than me. I do. I believe that. You go, how many here believe that God is smarter than you? Anybody believe that? So then why are we doing our thing rather than his thing? See how my mind works? I go, why would I do that? God's smarter than me. So I'm going to do his thing rather than my thing. Because I'm not as smart as him. Just a thought. <laughs> Think about these things. You know, you've got to start talking to yourself and saying, smarten up, buddy. Shape up. You know? I do the best preaching to my own soul. You know, I preach to me all the time. I'm always preaching inside of myself to myself. See? You guys got to practice. It's good for you. It'll help you. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? By the way, I'm just quoting the scripture there. Psalm 42, 43. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Look, he's talking to himself. Do you guys talk to yourself? Okay. <clears throat> I used to I always hear it. When you start answering, that's when you have to get worried. But <clears throat> you talk to your soul, right? Hey, soul, why are you like this? 
And you've got to have a little talk to yourself go. How many here, sometimes you're discouraged? You ever get discouraged? Anybody ever get discouraged? Anybody get discouraged? Any honest people here? Okay. Now, what do you do when you're discouraged? Do you wallow in it? You know? Or you say, shape up. Think about it. You know, I'm co-ruling with God. My, my inheritance has been given to me. I have phenomenal blessings from God. I just start naming my blessings. You start listing off all the blessings you've got. After a while, you go, what in the world am I discouraged about? See, you've got to talk to yourself, folks. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying that, you know what? God has a phenomenal rescue plan, but we're trying everything else. That's what I'm saying this morning. And what we need to be doing is embracing God's plan and going to him. Whatever problem you have. How many here today, every head bowed, you just say, you know what, Pastor? I do not have a high value of my own soul. That's you today. I feel like I depreciate myself over and over again. That's you today. Just raise your hand. I feel other people keep sending me messages that I've got no value. That's you today. Raise your hand. You know, I want to pray for you guys. Because I want you to begin to see the real message. You know what? Here's the real message God says. I designed you perfectly. I created you. You're co-reigning with me. I got an amazing destiny in mind for you. You know, all you got to do is trust me. Stop just doing your own thing. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Just trust me. I want to pray for you this morning that you will begin to feed into your soul what God says about you. What does God say about me, Pastor? It's in the book. That's why I'm a big proponent of reading the Bible every day. The number one thing that will change your life is reading this book every day. I've been doing that for 39 years. It's changed my whole orientation. My whole worldview has changed just from reading this book. This book is life-giving. This book is transformational. And all you need to do when you do it is start praying. Holy Spirit, start talking to me. And then start writing it down. That's, that's the thing I didn't learn for a long time. I was very undisciplined. I was a very undisciplined person. You're all looking at me like, really? Yes. And over the years, I've become more and more disciplined. Why? That's what happens when you walk with God. You become more disciplined. You get more done. Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters.